0: The idea here is how do we give feedback, both positive and constructive? How do we build and cultivate communication or relationship? And we set expectations for how we're going to interact, how I'm going to evaluate your performance, how I will support you and manage you. How do we do this in a way that it balances and provides that level of push, that level of cortisol that we need, that challenge, but at the same time, support in the process.
1: Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. Just a few years ago, employee engagement seemed to be focused on foosball tables and other gimmicks designed to make work seem fun. Today, employers and leaders are more focused on more subtle changes to how they interact with their teams to meet employees' needs and expectations from their time at work. Joining me today to discuss how brain science is changing the way we think about leadership is Dr. Jason Jones. Jason is an entrepreneur, speaker, and executive coach with two decades' experience in the training, development, and employee engagement arenas. Jason is CEO of LeaderPath, a training and coaching firm that uses science-based methods to improve people and business performance. He has his PhD in psychology from the University of Oklahoma and is the author of two books, the most recent of which is Activator, Using Brain Science to Boost Motivation, Deepen Engagement." And supercharged performance. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Jason.
0: Thanks, Mike. It's an honor to be here with you.
1: So, at HR Southwest last fall, uh, you were there, and I was speaking as well. And several people said, "Hey, you need to meet this guy. He's a really, he's really, really interesting, really dynamic, right up your alley." And then we just never crossed paths at the right time. And I think your session was at the same time that one of mine were, which probably explains why I didn't have anybody in my session. Because uh, it certainly wasn't me or my content, so uh, I'm glad we're finally getting to, get to, uh, to to meet and talk.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I same here. Uh, I've heard your name uh, multiple times from multiple people, and uh, someone asked me, uh, uh, you know, you know Mike, right? And I'm like, you know what? I hear Mike's name all the time. I got to meet Mike, so I was searching you out, but uh, we finally get a chance to meet after uh, HR Southwest. So it's good good to be here with you, though.
1: Yeah, they probably said. You know Mike, but don't loan him any money. That's probably you know, <laughs> I'll never pay you back. So uh, you're an organizational psychologist, I guess. Is is that what you call yourself? I mean, you're you're applying, you've got a PhD in psychology, so is that and you're working in the workplace. So what does an organizational psychologist really do then?
0: Yeah, so I call myself an organizational psychologist. If you want to be technical about it, you know, my PhD and the uh, you know the learning um Uh, agenda of my PhD program was in industrial organizational psychology, and there's really two parts of that. Industrial is much more, um, I'd call it more data-driven, also much more environmentally driven. So uh, they're looking at, you know, performance based on, you know, what color is the room and the lighting and those sorts of things that we've looked at actually for many decades, uh, going back to uh, the mid Um, you know, 20th century. Uh, Organizational psychology, on the other hand, is much more of the people side. And so it's much more about people, teams, culture. And so we're really looking at how do we take behavioral science and better understand people and better understand how people work together and then how we do this in an organizational fashion to be able to reach our goals, to be more profitable and to reach our mission as, as an organization.
1: So when you say behavioral science, I mean, behavior, that sounds like a really soft and, and kind of, you know, hard to put a pin in kind of topic. Uh, what is what's behavioral science really then? Oh,
0: it's uh, in a nutshell. <laughs> it is the study of why people do what they do. OK, I want to give you a street street term for that a street language for it. Uh, it is the scientific process of going about understanding what are the, how do we better understand people, personality, uh, temperaments, style, uh, management perspectives, management and and how we uh, interact, how we communicate, and then knowing what is most effective in that and getting the type of outcomes that we want. So w- when you kind of look at, there's many layers of this, right? Just like there's many layers of any one individual. Um, but. Ultimately, what we're doing is we're trying to better understand why people do what they do. And in my area, it's specifically in the workplace.
1: That would obviously, I mean, why people do what they do would obviously tie into our brains. And so I can kind of see how neuroscience or the study of, of the brain and how it functions works. But so but how do you draw that connection between just that brain science and how an organization performs overall? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, gosh, go, going
0: back about 15 years, I finished my PhD and, uh, about 19 years ago, and everything was about behavior. It was all behavior, uh, early 2000s. I think it was 2000 and, uh, two, now, 20 years now. Um, and, you know, I got out and I began practicing in the workplace. And I began to really understand the fact that we can't explain everything from a behavioral perspective, right? and I uh, began to really look into some of the most the, the emerging uh, brain science, emerging neuroscience, and there were becoming some really fascinating studies, especially as we uh, gotten to the end of the 2000s, beginning of the 2000 teens. Um, researchers like uh, Richard Boyatzis and, and Anthony Jack and, and others and their their research at uh, Case Western Reserve uh, University, looking literally at FMRI studies of the brain of people who are in employment, in who are employees or in an employment environment and helping us better understand how their brains are working, for me was like the missing piece, was the missing puzzle. And so I began to then look at how can we bring both of these things together? Obviously, we wanna know how as leaders to interact, with an employee to be able to better understand how to engage them, how to motivate them, how to get the best out of them, bring out their best. Right. But what I realized is, is that it didn't explain everything and not everything was behavior based in, in terms of how I as a leader could help influence a person. But there was more there. There was a neuroscience, there was a hormonal, there was a neurochemical, Uh, perspective of this, a very individualistic perspective that a person brings to the table. Right. And so that's when I begin to understand more of, hey, this neuroscience really is something we have to look at. And if you're going to be a good leader, I I would uh, posit to you that you need to understand how the brain works because it's more than just incentive and reward and communication that tells people what to do and how to do it. All those things are good, but there's more to it than that in a way that we can unleash people to be their best and want to do their best.
1: So I'm a big Sam Harris fan and um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm convinced by his argument that it's all brain. I mean that there's not a self mm-hmm. apart from the functioning of how your brain is and all of, uh, and all of that. But it's, you know, like you said, it's, it's how those neural pathways are mapped across your brain. And and I assume that you think that, you know, changes in behavior from your stimulus and from your leadership and everything can, you know, affect the neuroplasticity of, of how you, you know, how you respond to different circumstances and things like that. So it's all brain, mm-hmm. but we don't all have time to go study neuroscience or get a PhD in psychology. <laughs> so yeah. as leaders, what, what are some principles or, you know, what are the things that leaders, the big picture things leaders really need to understand, uh, in, about neuroscience in order to impact how they, how they lead uh, their people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I certainly want, I agree with what you're saying because when we boil this all down, uh, it is, it is the brain. Um, so it, you know, but we have to think of it. I like to look at what I call the new science of performance is behavioral and neuroscience put together. They support each other. They're, they're one in the same, but it helps us to better understand. So to give you a, a, uh, an understanding of that, uh, before I answer your question mm-hmm. completely, yeah, yeah, is, is that we for many, many decades believe that if we want to get the behavior that we want from an individual, then we have to do something very behavioral oriented. So we boiled it all down to incentive and reward or punishment and pleasure, right? And that is a pure behavioral perspective, not understanding fully the brain. So we're just and treating the employees works. like the, the mice
1: in the, in the maze.
0: Absolutely, or, or like an animal. We're, we're essentially working with them from their midbrain.
1: okay?
0: And we're ignoring uh, the, the limbic brain, the limbic, the, the lizard brain, and we're also ignoring the executive function, which is where purpose is found. And that is our human brain. That's that's the most powerful part of our brain, and so we haven't been actually utilizing, bringing out the best part of people in how their brain works. So that's uh, well, I wanted to clarify that.
1: No, I think that's interesting. And so, real quick, just give us the 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 thirty second or minute version of of brain science. What talk about the executive function versus the limbic and in the middle brain? Just I'm now I'm just. Now my listeners are just having to listen to something because I'm curious. And so just, you know,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no problem. And I think this is this is yeah, th- this is pretty foundational to this, too. And and this is uh, there's a lot of parts of the brain. We can spout off all kinds of different words that we can't hardly even, you know, we'd never remember or we can't hardly pronounce. Right. But what's good for a leader to know are there's three key areas of the brain that we make decisions and we process and we function from, especially in the workplace right? And how we do our work. Uh, The the first one is our limbic system. It is the brainstem, the cerebellum. It's the most inner part of our brain right off of your spinal cord. Uh, That is what we call the lizard brain. Many people have heard that called the lizard brain. Uh, This is really what it functions for all of our autonomic functioning, Uh, our breathing, uh, our uh, heartbeat, um, everything that has to do with our organ function that we don't have to think about, it's all, it all starts there. But that also is the area that is responsible for fight, flight or freeze responses. It is the, it is the fear portion of our brain that enacts often when you're put on the spot or you're upset, it takes over and can hijack the other two parts of our brain. It's important that we know that is, if we work from that part of the brain, uh, we are either, we're, we're, literally working from a fear-based protectionism perspective. The second part of the brain is the midbrain, it's a little bit further out. And this part of their brain is, uh, responsible for emotions, uh, responsible for, uh, reward and, and, and pleasure and pain and differentiating that understanding whether we want to keep doing something or not. Is it rewarding? Is it aversive? Those sorts of things. That's called the midbrain. It's also called the mammalian brain. And why the mammalian brain? Because that's where we're trained from in many ways when we're when the rest of our brain isn't developed as a child, right? So this is where we, and, and many animals, mammalians have this, and this is why we can train them with treats or with attention, right? Um, that is often where we get a lot of our behaviorism pers- principles from the past um, about how do we incentivize and reward and get the same um, get the same outcomes that we want, or the, or the same uh, behaviors we want. Problem is, we now know that midbrain satiates, and what's rewarding at one point becomes not so rewarding in the future, especially for humans, because we have this third brain this this third part of our brain, which is the cerebral cortex this is the outside of their brain this is uniquely human and yes primates have this but they do not have the they don't have the level of executive function that we have this is where we make all the decisions this is where we can think ahead we can metacogitate which is thinking about our own thinking right and we're unique for that and that is the area that uh, we want people to use uh, this makes us more creative it makes us more planful it's more um, we have more emotional control all those things are more innovative. That's where we want to really build our, uh, how we stimulate the brain and where people put their brain to work is from that most powerful part, the cerebral cortex.
1: So that, that limbic brain then is old school management, right? Uh, You're worried about getting fired. Uh, I'll yell at you if you're late. And, uh, and, you know, everybody's, walking on eggshells to, you know, don't want to misstep or step out of line or anything like that. So, uh, and, and we can see why that doesn't work. I mean, you know, it's, nobody wants, you know.
0: I, well, the thing is, is it does work uh, temporarily. Right, yeah. And in certain situations, it does work and it shoots the right chemicals, the right hormones into what we need to do. In fact, uh, I tell people that when it, when it comes to uh, cortisol, that's one of the it's a stress hormone. It's not all bad. It cortisol's gotten a bad rap. Uh, a little bit of cortisol and when it's balanced and when a leader knows how to uh, work uh, individualized with an employee we can work with them in a way that we can uh, utilize that cortisol a little bit of it but not get them into that fight flight or fear or, or fight fight or freeze and then you have an influx of the cortisol that then shuts your brain down right um A little bit of cortisol actually is what motivates you and gives you a significant amount of focus. So remember the last time that you were under a deadline or maybe you procrastinated and all of a sudden, man, you got to get it focused and how fast you did it. And there's even evidence that you're under cortisol, uh, the right amount of cortisol, your performance and your quality is better than it would be without cortisol if you're just relaxed and working on a project or or, uh, a task.
1: Yeah, it's the old diamonds are made under pressure. But we can't, we can't grind a person down all day with that at that yeah, level of pressure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So that's what I talk about in activator is that is the idea that um, we want to be able to as leaders to light up the brain, activate the brain uh, in multiple areas in ways that bring the right chemicals, the right neurochemicals, the right hormones into place that optimizes, helps uh, our people optimize their brain so they can do their best and so they can be their best.
1: So that takes us back to that idea of of some principles that big picture stuff that you know we've we've kind of talked about the biology of the brain. Uh, what are the the takeaways that a leader who really wants to influence uh, positively uh, and you know their their team? What are the what are they what are the big picture things they really need to understand then? and how they lead. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, and that's what I spent, uh, a lot of people ask me, how long did it take you to write your book? And I said, uh, a, a year of writing uh, and editing, uh, but about 15 years of studying and trying to, to understand how I could, how to communicate this, how to put it together in a way that's understandable to people, right? And that a, a leader can go out and put this into practice. So there are, uh, there are three uh, practices that I um, that I suggest <laughs> that I uh, encourage leaders to to use on a daily basis. In fact, I I uh, use these three practices. I, I put an ing on the end of each one of them, and, uh, and and all of the the neuroscience really kind of fits into one of three of these practices in how that we go about um, uh, putting this into into practice each day. And so the first one is connecting. And that is how we build trust through relationships. The second uh, principle is coaching. And this is how we facilitate high performance with backbone and heart. And then the third one is culturing. And this is how we set and uphold standards of excellence. And so each one of these, notice it has an ING because it's connotating the fact that these things don't, they they don't, we never get to an end place here. We can't just get there and go, okay, we're, we're good. And so if you wanna be an activator, I tell people these are the daily practices. Now I'm an advocate for leadership competencies, but Mike, how many leadership competencies are there out there?
1: Yeah, as many people as there are people who wanna write white papers on them, yeah.
0: Absolutely, and one of the drawbacks of having so many competencies in most organizations' leadership competencies, they've got a dozen, two dozen, three dozen, right? And, And it can be overwhelming for a leader That when we show up each day, we're not thinking about, you know, all the different competencies we may be working on and what our goals are around that competency. So then nothing gets worked on. And oftentimes the behaviors, it doesn't give us an opportunity to actually uh, be purposeful in putting in place new behaviors. And so these three things, what I implore leaders to do each day, think about what are you doing to connect with people. And connection is not just a relationship. We all have a relationship. Connecting is a continuum of what our trust level is with people. And there are ways that we can go about that because what you're doing in that is you are appealing to that, that limbic brain to say, I am safe. Your leader is safe. This is a safe place for you. There's psychological safety with that. And not only that, that I care for you, that, uh, uh, I am someone you would want to work hard for and help me with my success with, right? I'd say there's three, three, uh, three C's of of uh, this area of connecting, and that is uh, uh, it is communication. I had to think there for a second. Uh, communication, it's caring, and it's character. And when you look at the research and you look at the data, that is what people are looking for to – to determine whether they wanna work hard for someone else. If you've got those three things down, if you've got a strong connection with uh, your employee where you have managed the limbic brain, where you have sufficed the the, uh, midbrain, they are being sufficiently rewarded, and then you're now helping them to connect from a purpose perspective uh, with their executive brain, their cerebral cortex, then you've got a person that is going to be much more likely to be lit up okay. and uh, utilizing and optimizing their brain. So that's kind of the connecting piece of that. Um, in communication, although I mention the other couple of things, in communication, I talk about how at clarity and consistency are premiums. And if we do not detect, if our brain does not detect clarity and consistency, we have problems because our brain fills in inconsistency or unclarity, it, uh, chaos, it fills it in with something negative or something threatening. Right. This happens right. all the time and change, right? right? And so that's very key, key to that. And then character, and I've done some research on character and if you wanna talk a little bit about that, I'm happy to do that uh, around leadership and character. But uh, character is a, a person's perspective or, or uh, feeling of, is this person, do Is this a person that I want to work with that I want to help support or is this all about them? Are they selfish or is this something outside of them? And the interesting thing about character, what we find is that when someone has a higher level of character and we detect that, we will follow them and we will help them even if we disagree with them. And so it's a really unique kind of – uh, situation there that we can have if we bring those things and it builds this connection, the stronger the connection, the more that person is going to be open rather than being fearful, it's going to light up other parts of their brain. So now they're ready to go and give their best and do it voluntarily rather than because they're being you know, rewarded or that there's some type of threatening uh, ramification for not doing what they were asked to do.
1: So we've got these three big areas, let me see if I can get them all, connect communicate Mm -hmm. and culture is that right did i say that right or did i uh the
0: the second one's coaching the second one's coaching so let's talk about coaching a little bit
1: then more uh more uh, because that's that's absolutely kind of where i was going um i'm i assume you mean by coaching more than simply saying okay you did this wrong do it right next time uh when you're talking about coaching what Mm -hmm. does that really involve from the brain science point of view
0: yeah yeah so um here's what we want to do and this kind of goes back to the cortisol coaching when it's done right a lot of people think they're and I teach how to coach um and uh, have a, a whole area of this in my book and how to go about doing this but um uh, coaching is how do we interact in a way that balances backbone and heart how do we get and that really is the the, the real acid test for a leader, right? How do we hold people accountable? How do we drive performance? We keep them developing and progressing, but at the same time, we are caring for them, keeping them engaged, right? And and so that takes this unique interaction that I call coaching, and I've got a model around this, but the, the idea here is how do we give feedback, both positive and constructive, How do we build and cultivate communication, a relationship, and we set expectations for how we're going to interact, how I'm going to evaluate your performance, how I will support you and manage you? How do we do this in a way that it balances and provides that level of push, that level of cortisol that we need, that challenge, but at the same time, support in the process? This is what the brain needs and thrives on. So if we all think about the best leader that we've had, it was it is likely that leader that wasn't the, the nice pushover, but it also wasn't the person who was uh, rude and intimidating and the steamroller, right? It was someone that pushed us and challenged us, but we knew, and they did it in a way that they had our interest in mind, not their interest in mind. Yeah. And they made you believe I, that you could really so do this, this
1: thing, that it was it was, it was possible. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And there's something golden about this. When we in our brain, when we say, Yes, I understand this is the case with that person, it opens us up. It it suppresses our limbic brain that even when we hear something that is constructive feedback, this is the number one problem in leadership, probably, is when either someone's afraid to give constructive feedback and or they give it, they give it wrong. But here's the thing is, is, Imagine if we could give constructive feedback in a way that it opens people up rather than shutting them down. Because most, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and throw out a statistic, 90% of constructive feedback is met with either uh, some type of defensive perspective or they, uh, you know, uh, they don't agree with it or they get upset with it. And, and then there's ramifications to that afterwards that hinder a person making a change. So leaders, what we have to do is figure out how to have a method to being able to give that constructive feedback. How someone can change, how they can get better, be a better performer, uh, be, behave better, and do it in a way that someone says, "Okay, I, I see that, and I and I'll take ownership of of making some changes or getting better in that area."
1: That's so. That's not just about the the leader's behavior then either, right? The, I mean, the individual how they receive mm-hmm. that information. And I mean, we've, I'm sure we've all worked with people who, no matter how kindly, well intentioned, well worded any feedback was, you know, the it was just another chip on their shoulder and, and, it, you know, their, their response was going to be negative. Yeah. But, but as a leader, my argument would be you still got the responsibility to figure out how to reach that person too. Or, move them out of the role where you're having to lead them. I mean, those are your two choices, right? Either you've got to get the bet, you know, you got to help them be successful. That's your job. Or you got to find uh, someplace where they're going to be happier.
0: Absolutely. But I will, uh, uh of, the, of the, the thousands of leaders that I've worked with being a leader myself in the corporate world as well. Um, I believe most leaders are not equipped to be able no, to create so. <laughs> an atmosphere to facilitate. That's why I use the word facilitating high performance. You can't high performance somebody. You have to facilitate it in them. And leaders who are able to understand how to facilitate that can actually bring out the best of people in a way that they don't even know they have, right? Because they are hindered by their own defense mechanisms. And and so I'll give you two examples. You want two examples of this? Yeah. Of what what I teach around this. Uh, The first one is uh, our brain. Um, needs expectations set, specific expectations, especially around fearful areas or threatening type of things, right? So, um, if I'm going to go to a haunted house, Mm -hmm. I better have an expectation that, you know, I'm not going to be injured here. And this is going to be, you know, this is all kind of fake. Because if you went into a regular house and that happened, you know, you're going to have problems. You might wet your pants or right. whatnot. It's the same way at work when we're giving feedback, when we're we're leading a person, when we're managing a person. We have to set expectations up front of this is how I work. This is what you can expect. And so I uh, I ask leaders to um, if you haven't done this, uh, even if you're a leader and you're you're you know been a leader for a long time with the same group, just have a, a reset and say hey i want to talk to you all about how i lead and how we work together here's what you can expect from me and one of the things i ask people to build in there is that when we get together when we have our one-on-ones at least every two weeks or once a month expect from me that i'm going to give you i'm going to tell you what you're doing well what i see but i'm also going to give you at least one piece of constructive feedback and that's my attempt to be able to help you." To get better and to be better, right? And so you're setting this expectation. Now they're ready for this, right? This helps our brain to be ready, and it and it um, it helps our limbic system to be to be able to manage that better, rather than it being a uh, you know uh, surprising or something like that.
1: Well, and that means every time we have a one to one with my I don't have, I have a one to one with my boss. I'm not walking in in total fear, okay, I, I know what to expect. So I'm not worried. Okay, am, you know, am I going to get my my shorts chewed uh, for something that, you know, that wasn't expecting or, uh, uh, you know, it's, yeah, so it takes some of those, those interact, the fear out of that interaction. And, and, and yeah, but that, that comes with trust, right? The boss has actually got to do that consistently, too.
0: Absolutely. And that leads us to the second, uh, second principle around this. And this is you you, want to help help the brain out with giving constructive feedback and coaching someone is uh, when you are beginning that process, you're sitting down with them, you're doing an annual evaluation, whatever it might be that you're doing, um, you need to uh, express your intent. You need to state your intent about why you're giving this constructive feedback ahead of time. Because here's the thing, our brain is fantastic at filling in the gaps. The problem is, is that we fill in the gaps, oftentimes, probably, you know, uh, I would say maybe a five to one ratio, we're going to fill in the gap with something more negative or threatening, right? And why? Because that's the reason our brain, I mean, that's the number one uh, priority of our brain is staying alive and avoiding threatening situations, right? And so um, this this is being able to let people know. uh, So for instance, your brain, if if I showed you like a sentence and a bunch of letters were gone out of that, of, of the words, you would still be able to put that together for a sentence. If I showed you a picture that had pieces out of it, right? Your brain fills in the gap. Our brain is fantastic at doing this. If you sit down with someone and begin giving them constructive feedback, they are trying to make the picture out of this. They're trying to fill in the gaps of why is my boss telling me this? Uh, this is out of the blue. Are, are they having a bad day? Do they not like me anymore? Do they Are they having to let someone go and now I'm on the list? Um, do, do they get their jollies and their kicks off of making someone feel bad? Maybe this is a way to feel superior for them today. You know, there's all these things that we're going to put in there that then distracts us and it also makes us want to then throw those walls up of defense, Right. And so what we want to do when we state the intention up front and say, hey, you know, Mike, I, I want to I want to talk to you about that presentation that you gave last week. Um, great job. But I have a few things that I'd like to to tell you about that I think can make it even better next time because you, you're going to be I can see you growing in this. Right. Uh, it could be, hey, you know, Mike, uh, the way you interacted in the last meeting, I have a, a few um, a, a few ideas for you. To be able to make sure that has a better outcome for you and uh, because i really want you to be successful in this project that you're leading right and so you're setting that up front and now they can focus they've filled that blank in you've helped them fill that, that gap in in their brain and now they can focus on what you're saying but here's the thing coaching you earn the right to coach by having a strong connection and that's why i put connecting first you build that trust that then earns you the right to be a better coach. And by the way, the culturing part, don't think that you're gonna build a great culture and that uh, that the culturing of people is gonna happen well if you're not connecting with people and you're not
1: coaching people well on an individual basis. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, This episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for three quarters of a recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research credits. Then select episode 83 and enter the keyword brain. That's B-R-A-I-N. On March 8th, I'll be hosting a webinar entitled Ethical Considerations in Talent Acquisition. We'll discuss the relationship between individual and organizational ethics, and engage in an interactive conversation around a number of common ethical challenges that we face in recruiting, interviewing, and selecting new employees. This free webinar is approved for one professional development credit for SHRM certified professionals and one hour of general recertification credit for HRCI certified professionals. You can register for this free webinar at imperativeinfo.com. And if you're listening to this podcast after March 8th, you can still watch the recorded webinar on our website for credit free. And don't forget that last week's webinar, Mitigating Bias in the Employee Selection Process, is available for viewing for credit at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Dr. Jason Jones. You've talked some about on the coaching side, what are some other, what are some core practices or block and tackle things that as a leader, I can go back and start? saying, okay, I need to make sure that tactically I'm doing these three, four things, whatever, uh, on a consistent basis to really improve that engagement with that employee, that connection, and the ability to coach them and uh, help build a culture on my team that that's positive uh, that's positive and productive.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the idea of Activator, reason why I call the book Activator is um, is the idea that We can, as leaders, light the brain up in multiple areas of our people. In fact, uh, the research I mentioned of uh, Boyatzis and Jack and their research team at Case Western Reserve uh, University, um, they looked at these MRIs and they found that when leaders have a, a positively emotional connection in their interactions with people, it lights up 14 areas of the brain. It literally activates the brain. When they looked at leaders who were, uh, and they they actually put these employees in fMRI machines and had them re-experience in their mind this last interaction they had with their their supervisor. And when they looked at the group, those who had negative experiences, their boss was uh, controlling, demanding, sometimes maybe even demeaning or micromanaging. Um, They found that uh, 11 areas were deactivated. And there were about six areas that were activated, right? And so there is this principle, this idea that in our interaction, we can light up people's brains. And I I like to have leaders think about, your job could be easier if you focus on how do I help optimize and bring out the best of people in their brain? One of the things we talk about is the fact that uh, our interactions are chemical. We have chemical interactions with one another. And so what kind of chemistry are you creating in your people? When you walk into a room and you're walking into a meeting, what kind of chemistry are you creating with people, right? And uh, and that is going to, and you don't have to know all the chemicals and things like that. It's really about, are you bringing more emotionally positive uh, energy to people and bringing them in lighting and lighting and kind of greasing the wheels to light up the brain? Are you... Uh, uh, helping them to catch fire. Um, also, whenever you look at um, you, you look at, at the brain, it is it it fuels, it feeds off of other people around them being lit up as well. So we communicate in ways. This is what's fascinating about neuroscience right now is we we realize now that we communicate in ways we don't even understand, and it's hard to even measure. Now we've known this about pheromones and hormones from decades past, but now there is very good data showing that the hormones that we excrete out of our skin, that we are smelling them. We don't know we smell them, but when we smell them, this is the reason why we might like someone or not like someone. There's some data that even shows that you choose your friends, you choose your partner in life based on olfactory senses. Also brain waves and electrical activity that is around you. Now. Please don't think this is all woo-woo. Because, this is getting
1: pretty woo. Yeah, I was say, but, okay. but Mike,
0: so, I, get this, Mike, uh, 150 years ago, if I came to you and said, hey, there's all these waves around us. They're called radio, radio waves. And uh, one day we're going to communicate through these waves and we're going to have radios and we're going to be able to have clear communication. We're, we're even going to be able to do video communication through all this. You would look at me and say, well, first of all, 150 years ago, you'd would say, what is video? But uh, and what is the radio? <laughs> right? Uh, Because the first person who tried to create and and tell about how this could be a radio uh, got rejected, right? And uh, now everything is built on those waves we cannot see, but we know that there are hundreds of these radio waves, right? And so the way that we communicate now we're realizing is much more than even micro expressions or body language or the words that we say. And so I help leaders to to be thinking about what is it that you're doing to bring this emotional um, interaction that builds connecting. And the number one thing against it that works against you is ego. Before you walk into that room in that meeting, before you have a sit down, constructive feedback, if you really want to connect well, you need to make sure your intention, your reason for doing that is as pure as it possibly can be.
1: Yeah, I think the reason why it, yeah, people pick up the reason that, right? why yeah. is yeah. because
0: they will pick up. We our brain has a BS detector. Let's just right. let's be honest. We we all know that, and and sometimes some of us our brain has a really good BS detector, and for some of us it takes a little bit. But our brain has this BS detector. It has this ego detector, and if we detect that this is about them, this is about their bonus, this is about my boss's, uh, you know, success, not mine. It'll shut me down. And I won't want to give my best for this. I'll give just enough to get by and not get fired.
1: Is that one of the underlying causes of what's always been around, but now we're calling quiet quitting? Do you think that's really affecting, do you think that maybe especially a younger generation is either more cynical or just simply more perceptive and uh, and are, are, are reacting more negatively to uh, to that kind of leadership that's more centered on on the leader's motivations and goals?
0: Uh, absolutely. Um, I think there is multiple reasons for the quiet quitting, uh, multiple reasons for why we see what we see in, you know, over the last uh, two years in the workplace, which is a significant amount of people changing jobs, quitting their jobs. And it is a combination. I think it all goes back to culture and leadership, but it is a combination of uh, values. And we have more, People in the workforce now that have a fundamental different value for what work means and what work is about than what our traditional silent generation baby boomers had. Right. And and the the funny thing about this is and I could go on a long time about this, Mike. But the interesting thing about this is, is that um, it's the baby boomers that created this. We told our kids growing up, and and I'm not a boomer, I'm a Gen Xer, but now my kids are 18 and and 19. Um, We told them, don't settle for someone who speaks to you disrespectfully. You can go somewhere else. Don't settle for that. You are worth it. You are valuable and and defend yourself. We gave them all these values. And we also tried to tell them, you know what? I'm working my tail off. You know, money's not everything. And you got to like your job. You got to enjoy it you know, experience life. So now we have two generations, millennials and Gen Z. My kids are Gen Z. They're in the workforce now, right? That have a whole different perspective and they will not stand for a jerk boss and they will leave and go somewhere else.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Worst case scenario, they stay. They're just never quite bad. You know, I call them office. I was before quiet quitting. I was calling them office vampires, Mm -hmm. the ones who were never quite bad enough to fire, but they're just sucking the life out of the organization a little bit at a time. So Um, but I think most bosses don't want to be for lack of a better term, a shitty boss. What they want is to, you know, is to be, to do good. I think most of us want to do good at our job, but I just think organizations aren't doing a good job of training people how to lead. I mean, we, you're, you know, you were, you know, I always use the, my experience when I was in healthcare, you're a great nurse. So we're going to make you a nurse manager and with almost no training on how to manage or lead people. And, uh, and I think that happens everywhere from, you know, the, the, you know, the floor manager at a retail outlet all the way up to, you know, uh, really the executive offices. I, I, I just don't think we spend, we invest enough uh, as, as a business community in training, in training leaders. So what would you like to see? How would, if I'm a company and I'm saying, okay, um, we know we, we need to do better in this area. What are some things that, besides buying copies of your book for everybody and having you come consult with them, which I would definitely recommend, what are some other things that a company can do to bake some of these processes and some of this awareness into the organization?
0: Yeah, you know, um, I think, and you mentioned this kind of earlier on, I think one of the fallacies that that we have fallen into is the fact that if we create programs, engagement programs, Um, you know, and then we go about scaling those and, and they become very generic so we can make them cost effective, um, that that's going to be the key, right? I I work with an organization that spent $750,000 over a two year period on a, I'm not going to say what kind of program, but it was an online program, uh, was not a training program. It was a program that to help leaders and people to build each other up. I'll say it that way. After two years, they told me, uh, there was only a 5% um, uptake of it. They just could not get people into it. They wished they'd spent their money another way. As I began to work with them, they said, how would we have spent that money better? And I said, "Uh, the number one most important thing for building the type of culture that you wanna have, for helping people to become high performers is to invest in leadership development, specifically around uh, the leader-employee relationship. It is going to be the most significant um, relationship that has an impact on a person's engagement, motivation, and their performance and longevity uh, in your wor- at your workplace. And so, that helping people understand the relationship pieces of leadership. That's first and foremost, and what I would say uh, would want people to to begin and to really focus their efforts. And if their money's limited, make sure it's in that area that they're uh, investing in their people.
1: And when you know when we're, we're making those investments as a business, um, do we risk? Certainly, we need to make the investments, but do we risk putting the wrong? Having already have, let's say we already have the wrong people in the leadership roles. I mean, is this something you think you can train any leader to do or are there? Do we need to be more thoughtful in how we select the people who we move into leadership roles?
0: Yeah, Um, we certainly need to be more selective. Absolutely. Uh, Don't don't just uh, promote them because your performance as well as an individual contributor, there needs to be um, some specific things that are helpful for them. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book are these: how do we understand the motives and values of people? One of the motives and values is around leadership, and so we have evidence. This is uh, and this is uh, universal; it's true to humans because this research was done uh, across multiple continents. So it's not just a Western world uh, research uh, project. But essentially, what it showed is that uh, there are some people, kind of three three buckets that people uh, uh, fall in when it comes to influence and leadership. There are some that it is really a part of naturally who they are and what they do. They feel good about it and it fills them up. And they would lead, no. they'll lead because they'll volunteer. When someone needs a leader, they step up to do it. Why? Because it feels good and guess what? It lights up their cerebral cortex. It is aligned with their value of, of leadership and, and I call it, the, this is the value of power, okay? And uh, so it's a positive power. We also know there are people who are average in this area. So its it just depends on the situation, depends on uh, uh, you know maybe what incentives they get, that sort of thing. And then there are people who they would rather not do this. It's not aligned at all. In fact, it's bothersome to them. And so before you choose someone, you need to make sure that you're finding a person that is hopefully in that first category where they have a strong value and motive for that. And the motive is not based on money or it's not based on status, which is another value someone could have or a motive they could have is around status, right? One of the biggest things we have a problem with is moving people in the leadership because they are status oriented or money oriented rather than because they want to do it because it fills them up and it it, uh, fulfills them and excites them. Right. So that, that is one of the things I talk with uh, organizations about how to identify that in people. I have an assessment around that as well. It helps identify the values and, and the motives that people have. And that's really a part of that third, that third piece of the brain, the cerebral cortex. How do we engage that and get more out of that? We want to align people's motives and values with their work and their tasks. And so one of the things we need to stop doing, by the way, Mike, if we really wanna do uh, organizations well, um, I I would posit to you, and some organizations are doing this already and um, and for various reasons, but uh, that is we've gotta stop making the movement uh, up uh, in an organization about money because that is the driving factor why, why people
1: who should not be in leadership are in leadership is because of the money. That makes sense. And and really, that leader who's not doing their job well is costing you a lot more than than even the salary if you put them in the wrong place. And uh, and so, yeah, we need to figure out what the real value of every position in the organization is. And it may be that the and there are organizations where the leaders don't make nearly what the the some of the, the top individual contributors do because they can actually truly measure, measure what those contributions are, are bringing to the organization.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, money, money's going to always be a factor, but always think about money this way. I talk about this in the book. Uh, we look at money as an extrinsic motiv- motivator, right? Uh, you know, it's something that's given to us, not internal. Um, but, but why is it so powerful? The reason why is because it's just a vehicle to get us to something that's more intrinsically motivating more desirable. And whether that be, you know, a security or its status uh, or it's, you know, uh, taking care of your family um, or it's your social life, whatever it is, right? It is, it's a vehicle to get to that. Here's the thing. We can help people in our organizations meet those things without just money. Right. Yeah. Now money's going to be important. That's that's a whole nother episode, isn't it? (laughs) Um, uh, People have to be uh, compensated fairly and money can help us in some ways of reaching certain goals, but it's not the only thing that keeps us working from one part of the brain. We also have to have the alignment of values and motives that are more deep and intrinsic to us.
1: Yeah. And you're right. That's a whole nother, a whole nother hour, but we've gone way over time. I, I, you've been generous with it. So, uh, thank you so much for, for joining me, Dr. Jason Jones. You're welcome. And thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guest at GoodMorningHR.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week, and until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.